we're talking about is recognizing the multiplicities of ways that sexuality can be expressed. And when we can do that, it does open up pathways inside of us. It's just the subtlest little flicker of a yes can lead to the next little flicker and the next one and the next one. Welcome to Gathering Gold, a podcast for highly sensitive souls. I'm Cheryl Paul, a counselor trained in the Jungian depth psychological tradition. And I'm Victoria Russell, Cheryl's niece and co-host. Our first episode of the year 2023, last January, was called Sexual Sovereignty. And we spent a lot of time unpacking this idea that in order to have a true yes around our sexuality and sexual experiences, we needed to feel that we could say no. We needed to find our voice or reclaim our voice around saying no. And Cheryl, you talked about how this is really key to feeling safe enough to say yes. Now, Cheryl, you are gearing up for another round of your course, Sacred Sexuality, which starts on January 13th. So if anyone wants to learn more or register, please go to Cheryl's website, ConsciousTransitions.com. And we thought that because in our last episode about this topic, we talked a lot about the no that in this episode, we would try to talk about the yes in sacred sexuality. So Cheryl, you have a really beautiful blog post from a few years ago about sacred sexuality and some of your ideas about it. And I would really love to hear that blog post if you could share it. So I wrote this in May 2017 before the release of the first round of Sacred Sexuality. So almost five years ago. Well, wait, longer than that. Where's yeah, my now math? it's almost seven. Almost seven right? years ago. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. So this is the post. It's called We Have Forgotten Who We Are. We have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten that we're women of the moon and the sea, women of the tides and the jungles. We have forgotten that we run with the wolves and we swim with the dolphins, that we listen to the wisdom of the trees and we follow the metaphors in our dreams. We have forgotten how to dance in a grove of cypress and sleep among the beetles and bees. We have forgotten our wildness. We have forgotten that our bodies are gardens where we plant the seeds of our aliveness and desire. And when we water these seeds, they blossom into fields of poppy bliss and orchid fire. We have forgotten that when we squish our toes into the mud of our spring banks, we slide full-bodied into the rush and flood of snowmelt, unafraid of the current and cold. 
We're so lit up inside that even glacial runoff can't extinguish our flames. We have forgotten how to walk barefoot. We have forgotten how to get dirty and not in the pop culture sense. I'm talking about true dirt. I'm talking about dirt that seeps into the cracks in our souls and spreads over our skin in a layer of holy dust, causing us to remember that our original scent is the scent of the earth rising from our pores like steam from freshly plowed fields on a hot summer day. We have forgotten how to rejoice in these bodies. We have forgotten to press our ears to the earth. We have forgotten how to listen. We have forgotten who we are because we've been told lies about ourselves, our bodies, and our sexuality. We've been told that we are wrong, broken, bad in some way. We've been told that our bodies don't look right or smell right that there's something less than a cause for celebration and reverence. A long time ago, our bodies were honored as gifts of power and all would pray at the altars of our belly, our breasts, our sacred center. Now our bodies are defiled, used, objectified. We've come so far from the days of reverence that it's hard to remember, even for a moment, that this could be true. You may even cringe a bit while hearing this. It may make you want to run. But another part of you is listening, ears awake, hearts fluttering with yearning. What do you mean my body is sacred? What do you mean I'm a woman of the moon and sea? Something inside of you remembers. Something inside longs to return to your rightful place in the ancestral line to retrieve the lost legacy so that you can become fully alive and perhaps pass on these teachings to your daughters and daughters' daughters. Some part of you wants to remember who you are. It's time to remember. It's time to re-sanctify our bodies to hearken into our history and remember that we are priestesses and woodland dancers. It's time to remember that our sexuality isn't a source of shame and has nothing to do with what we look like or sound like, but how we feel from the inside out. The most common sexual complaint I hear from women is that they lack desire. But what they don't see is that healthy desire springs from the hidden and magical places in our own bodies. The cultural myth says that lack of desire is indicative of the wrong partner, or conversely, that the right partner would set you on fire. This is yet another myth in the long series of myths that create unnecessary anxiety in the realm of love, sex, and relationships. It's easy to buy into this myth, especially if you've experienced high desire in the past with other partners. But the question to ask is if those partners were fully available, for another cultural misfiring teaches us to equate desire with longing. When we want what we can't have and we use sex as a way to validate our worthiness, our bodies learn to awaken in response to being wanted. We become addicted to the gaze to the game of chase, to the drama. 
Everything in the culture, every novel, film, magazine, article, and billboard teaches us from the time we're little girls to link validation with desire. This is a massive and tragic misfiring. If we are to learn to activate healthy desire within the context of a committed partnership or alone, this misfiring needs to be corrected. We can heal and we can remember. We only need to be shown the way. We need the map so that we can reclaim our stolen treasures. What I love about that blog post is how it embodies the really sensuous, earthy type of sexuality that you are talking about. Mm. One of the first things we often learn in a creative writing class is to appeal to our five senses to write mm-hmm. about what we see and hear and smell and taste and touch. Mm-hmm. And that's what you did in that piece. And that's really, to me, where so much of the yes comes from is in mm-hmm. taking pleasure in the abundance of goodness in the material world mm-hmm. <laughs> that so many of us have been taught to fear or reject, like our Mm. our own bodies themselves or the dirt on the ground. I love when you talked about dirty, not in the typical sense that we hear that word used when Mm -hmm. talking about sex, but in the literal sense of of the earth. Yes. There are so many doorways and portals into our sensuality and sexuality. So sensuality, our senses being connected to our five senses is very much what makes us alive. And it is a portal then into sexuality and not, not in the portal like one precedes the other, but in the sense that it's all interwoven, that that when we are saying yes to life, yes to the goodness of a piece of fruit and taking our time to appreciate the juiciness and the colors and the taste and the smell of a peach or a strawberry or an orange, that we come alive. We come into the present moment. We come alive. We activate channels inside of us. And from there or in there, we can also connect to to Eros, right? Eros being our erotic nature. And I've said in other places, not erotic in the way of like pornography or erotic literature, 
but the true meaning of eros, which is the life force that is pulsing through everything. And we have, we do shut down. We shut down to our sensuality, to our creativity, to our aliveness, to our desire. And then we expect ourselves to turn it on sexually in bed. Like it's all just supposed to be there and it's supposed, and our partner's supposed to know how to do it. But so much of what I teach around sexuality is everything that leads to that moment in bed with or without a partner, like everything that comes before that and after that is critical to awakening, right? To the aliveness of our bodies. I think it's so perfect that you use the example of eating a piece of fruit because in thinking about this idea of finding our yes, I think about that natural curiosity that you and I have talked about that we have often as young children Mm. about all sorts of things, but including our bodies and sexuality, you know, we, we have like this natural curiosity, mm-hmm. but many of us have that curiosity kind of shamed out of us or maybe shamed into a different f- form where it has to go underground and we lock it away. And I just think about, you know, one of the first stories in the Bible of Eve eating the forbidden fruit. Hmm. And then becoming ashamed. And it's such a, you know, Mm. there's so much about sexuality in the imagery of that story of the snake and the fact that she and Adam are naked and then she eats the fruit and they become ashamed and they start to cover up. Mm. And so I think that is just a trajectory that many people have. Like at some point we had a curiosity or we had a connection to our bodies where we felt like maybe a more instinctual sense of what we liked and wanted and didn't like and didn't want, and things start to get in the way. And often there's a lot of shaming messages that get in the way. And we talked about this a little bit in the sexual sovereignty episode where you said, you know, we really praise children who are very agreeable, who just Mm – Mm-hmm. say yes to what we want them to say yes to and say no to what we want them to say no to. And so I think that effort to then try to find the true yes, so not just the appeasing, agreeable, good girl yes, mm-hmm. um, and the true no, that can be very challenging. Yes. So this piece about children and their natural curiosity, it comes up every time I run sacred sexuality and it comes Mm. up on the forum because I think the forum tends to be a safer place for people to talk about a very vulnerable topic, which is sex play as children and being curious about your own body as a child 
knowing on some level that yes, it's all normal, but the layers of shame are so deeply entrenched that to talk about it in any kind of public way, even though the private is very, very private, um, Mm. that the forum is very, very private, um, to talk about it with other women can be so healing and normalizing and to hear other people say, yes, this is how I explored sexuality as a child. And this is how I explored it with my own body. And this is how I explored it with other kids. And it's all normal. And so as we've said so many times on this podcast, that normalization is one of the greatest shame reducers. Um, sometimes it doesn't do the whole trick, but sometimes it does to, to just hear other people say, me too. Right. I did that too. And these were the messages I got about it. This is what I received. This is how my mother reacted, or this is how my religious institution reacted, or this is how an older sibling reacted. And it takes so little to create shame. It takes really just a look. It takes just a few words. We are so sensitized to shame, especially around our bodies and our sexuality, that just the slightest indication that what you are doing is wrong and boom, the whole thing can get shut down or hidden in secrecy with the quilt of shame over it, right? Just blanketed with shame. So it lives in us. It is such a natural part of being human, just like enjoying food and You watch little kids, you watch babies and toddlers, and they're just like reaching, 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 reaching for food and reaching for a new toy and reaching for, oh, their bodies, right? Like, look at this new thing that feels good. Wow. And girls tend to be shamed a lot more than boys around exploration, around masturbation, around that that whole sexuality in general, but specifically around experiencing your own pleasure in particular. Yes, and there's so much silence about it. No one really talks about masturbation or sex play or any of that. I mean, maybe some parents do, but... I don't know. In the wider culture, I feel like I think there's a lot of silence and there's just not even a lot of education, I think. Even in settings like a health class or, you know, more formal settings, I just don't think it's something that people talk about a lot, you know? It's not. I think in certain subcultures like where I grew up in West Los Angeles, it was talked about a bit more, but it was still, it was still taboo. It it was, it, it should, it shouldn't be that way. And, you know, it's, 
it is very private. And so on the one hand, that makes sense, right? How to honor privacy without it causing shame, how to recognize that it's such a personal, private experience, sexuality in general, self-pleasure in particular. Um, I mean, we had talked about you and I, the word masturbation, like it's just... It's just not a great word. So it's like, (laughs) (laughs) it makes it hard to even say it because it's not something that maybe because it's so infused with shame, but I just, you know, there's something about the sound of it that does not evoke poetry. Um, (laughs) You know, (laughs) we need a new word, but it's hard, it's hard to talk about it. And so to have safe places to talk about it is life-changing, right? To be able to tell our stories, even if it's just with one other person, is life-changing because we 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 need to give voice, most people do anyway, to these experiences that most people are having and not talking about. Right? And we know that silence tends to create shame. But again, this very delicate dance between honoring how personal it is. It's tricky. It's tr- I will say it's tricky being a parent, how mm-hmm. to talk about something that is so private and personal. If you don't talk about it at all, then it tends to create shame. Why is no one talking about this thing? Mm. But if you do talk about it, it's like the kids are like just – open up a hole in the floor right now. I'm going to die. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, like, please do not have that conversation. Yeah. So we, it, I, I don't know why it's that way. I would like to imagine that in some other more evolved version of ourselves as humans, there would be a way to talk about it that's not so cringy for young people. But I don't think we're there yet. I'm curious if you might be able to talk a little bit about the idea of sacred sexuality. I know that you've written about it on your blog, and obviously you talk about it in the course, but I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what that word sacred means for you in the Mm -hmm. context of sexuality, because I think you've touched on in the past, it's not about a religious connotation, right? Mm -hmm. Which Mm -mm. many people, when they put religion and sex together, what they get is just a whole lot of shame and fear. Yep. So from your perspective, when you think of sacred sexuality and that sacred yes, what what does that mean to you? Yeah. So when I think of sacred sexuality, I think first and foremost of connective sexuality that we are connected to ourselves. And if we are in a partnership, we are connected to our partner, that there is some sense of reverence. And that doesn't mean that it has to be all serious. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that it has to be all holy, but (laughs) that there's, there's deep respect in both directions, that there's deep presence Sacred sexuality, I say in the course or on my blog, is a slow, complicated, 
enriching, courageous, exploratory experience that carries at its core the principles of mindfulness, non-doing, non-striving, patience, and presence. It's a practice where two people in a committed relationship learn to place connection and curiosity above outcome, which means that lying down naked together is just as valid sexually as making love. So it's to me turning all of our ideas and myths about sexuality on their heads and turning the Hollywood version upside down that says it sex is ecstatic, magnetic, fast, loud, mutually orgasmic, always ends in intercourse, no matter what. And we get like the one minute version. <laughs> and we think that's how it is when in reality, it can be awkward. It is always incredibly vulnerable. Um, it can be funny. It can be non-goal oriented. And I encourage it to be non-goal oriented. Um, it, it should be honest that both people are saying what's actually happening for them and communicating from that place. I'm feeling a little bit shut down right now. I want to be here with you, but I don't know if my body is going to respond. And to be able to just say that, right? Or to say, oh, um, I mean, this touches on our other episode of sexual sovereignty, being able to have our voice, but the voice is so interwoven with sacredness that I don't think I can answer that question without talking about both people having a voice and being willing to hear each other in that place. Um, being able to, to slow things down when necessary, to stop when necessary, right? To take all of our ideas. It's really hard to get our ideas out of our heads because they're so ingrained in there from all of the films that we've all seen of what great sex looks like. And when it doesn't happen that way, which I really believe most of the time it does not happen that way, especially once you've been together for any length of time, mm -hmm. that then the sexual experience between, I'm talking more about between two people now, becomes something else, mm -hmm. becomes its own its own field, its own place of exploration and deepening. And then if you're not in a partnership, then the same thing, right? That it's a place of exploration, curiosity, deepening, um, you know, being interested in your body, being interested in different body parts, not only for one goal, right? Not just to have an orgasm. That might be part of it, but it might not. And that when I think of sacred and when I, when I touched into it in that blog post that I read initially about a long time ago, women's bodies were 
worshipped and revered. And we have archaeological evidence of this. And Rianne Eisler has written a lot about this. And she first wrote about it in The Chalice and the Blade, which came out in the 80s. And I loved this book. I was a teenager when I read it. And I loved this book and this this idea, which has been, I, I think, corroborated with evidence that a very, very long time ago that we were more matrilineal goddess-worshiping cultures and that in those cultures, and we have the, the figurines of the women and their bodies and, and you know, the breasts and the bellies and the vulva. And this is, this is what was worshiped and revered. And so I think we can imagine that with that as the central piece and not in any kind of objectification pornographic way, it might be hard even for our minds to imagine it because mm. we're so conditioned to see the naked body through the lens of objectification and eroticism in the other sense of eroticism, the more pornographic sense of arousal instead of as really this experience that the body, the female body here, we're talking specifically about in these cultures, this is like ancient Mesopotamia, um, was revered for its generative power, its creative power, that we have the capacity to create new life. And, but not only that, right? It wasn't just because we could be mothers, right? It was linking that to a spiritual place. So for me, it's not religious, the word sacred. And then we've talked about other episodes, but I don't, I don't come from that religious background, so it doesn't trigger that place in me, but I can certainly understand how it could easily. But for me, it's in the spiritual realm that there is a direct channel between the sexual and the spiritual, the sexual and the creative, and that our bodies in their most sacred sense, male, female, all genders, that just the human body is utterly miraculous. And the naked human body is beautiful so beautiful in all shapes and sizes, is so beautiful. And we have lost so much. We have lost this ability to see ourselves and others through that lens of beauty. And to me, the beautiful is the spiritual, right? It's the poetic. It's all that same place. Hmm. You know, it reminds me, have you seen the new, well, I'm six months late to this, but have you seen the Barbie movie? I haven't, but I very much want to see it. Yeah. I just watched it with my mom and my sisters when I was at my parents for Christmas. And in the movie, there's Barbie land where women, it's really like a, a matriarchal society. Like the women are in charge and they really have they don't have shame. And so someone, a, a woman will compliment another woman 
And she'll just be like, thanks, I know. You know, she'll say, you know, you're <laughs> such a great writer. And she'll say, thank you, I know. And you're such a good neuroscientist. And she'll say, thank you, I know. <laughs> and, uh-huh. and eventually some, you know, shame is introduced. And suddenly the women, the Barbies, they start to lose sight of their own goodness and beauty. Mm. And it was really powerful to watch my own reaction to a woman just being like, yeah, thanks, I know. And we're so mm. conditioned to be like, no, you're supposed to to push that away and not be not be vain or not be braggadocious mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and I think that's that's kind of a form of a uh, of claiming yes around our own, like you said, creativity and goodness and beauty in all senses. Yes. And it reminds me of the the film clip that you shared with me from another movie, Beautiful Dreamers, mm-hmm. about Walt Whitman, right? And I know you know the film much better than I do, so maybe you can share what that scene was about. It's this beautiful scene. Well, Walt, Walt Whitman was a devotee of the human body. And so, so much of his poetry is about celebrating being human. So in this scene, and I, I share the whole film in the sacred sexuality course, I have permission from the director to share the film there. It's a really beautiful and powerful film. And though this scene takes place in the water, Walt Whitman is friends with, with the male character and his wife. And so Walt and the guy are in the water swimming around naked. They just decide to pull over their horse and buggy one summer day and they jump into a lake. And she happens upon them. And she had been reading Walt's book. Um, and she was very bogged down in her shame and her religious shame. And, and as she's reading the book, she starts to unfurl. She starts to blossom. And she sees them in the water. And she takes off her clothes. And her husband's like, whoa, what, what are you doing, women? Like, you, no, no. <laughs> You do not do that. And she's like, I have nothing to be ashamed of. And she quotes Walt Whitman. She says, without shame, the man I like knows and avows the deliciousness of his sex. Without shame, the woman I like knows and avows hers. And she's quoting this as she's taking off all her layers because this is like, you know, when women wore all kinds of like under layers and bloomers and things, and she's <laughs> peeling off all the layers. And Walt swims away. Um, he's very respectful. And she jumps in. And and she's playful and they're sort of splashing each other with the water. And and she says to him, Do you do you like what you see? And he says, you're the most beautiful thing I've ever seen, but something like that. You're the most beautiful woman. And it's just this really, it's a very sensual, very beautiful, connected to nature in the water um, image, vision of shameless embodying. 
right? Being in one's body, inhabiting one's body without shame. And being seen, not just alone in this scene, being seen by one's partner through that lens. Mm. What did you think of this scene, Victoria? We haven't talked about it. Yeah, I I was kind of noticing and watching my reactions of on the one hand going like, yes, this is so beautiful. She's so free. And there's still that other part of me that's like, oh my gosh, she's getting naked in front of Walt Whitman, you know, and like she and her husband are just naked with this other naked guy. And like, there's this part of me that still has some fear, I think, that conditioned fear Mm -hmm. around what does it mean to be so free? And is it okay to just be naked around people? And Mm. I think I want to be honest about that because I, I think a lot of that fear can come up if you've had years and years and years of conditioning around Mm -hmm. bodies, nakedness, sexuality that is like, you know, this is bad or this is scary. Yeah, I just felt that part come up. And I I think similarly, like in your blog post when you said, you know, you might cringe hearing some of this. Mm -hmm. And I do notice those times when like I do either cringe or I, I feel like fear at the words of like, explore. Like, oh, just be curious and explore. I'm like, uh, <laughs> mm. yes. I don't want to explore um, because there's something, there's something scary about the unknown. And mm-hmm. when you pair unknown with something as vulnerable as sexuality, I think it can bring up fear. So I think that can play into the struggle around yes, And I think like everything else, it is kind of that spiral journey that you talk about where I'm Mm -hmm. not in the same place I was five or 10 or 15 years ago or whatever, but I still notice those parts pipe up and bring up some, some fear around this, this different way of, of being around sexuality. Yes. And the most important piece is to welcome in the fear also. Right? Mm. We're not trying to get over the fear. We're not trying to plow through it. Right? The fear is part of it. And the fear can, can come into the conversation and come, come into the bedroom. And to be able to even just say what you just said, I notice that part of my body, that part of me that kind of retracts or feels scared around certain invitations, certain words around exploration and curiosity, and even watching that scene. Um, And that, to me, that's all part of the conversation around sacred sexuality is, yes, let's talk about that fear and let's bring that in. Let's bring it in in all ways so that we're not banishing any element, like the 13th fairy that we talked mm-hmm. about, right? That we, we watch the parts that want to get banished, right? That we have been conditioned to banish and that we might still want to banish. And we and just to be able to name, oh, this might be part of my 13th fairy. For those of you who haven't listened to our episode with, with Dave, my husband on fairy tales, we talked about 
the banishment of the 13th fairy and Victoria brought in what, who might that represent? What parts might that represent inside of us? The parts that we don't want at the table. And so when we can open up the conversation gently, safely with, with safe others, maybe just with our partner, or maybe if you're on the course, you know, on the calls or on the forum, it's a very, very safe place to slowly, gently bring the layers of shame and fear to the table, slowly bring them back in to the table. Yeah, I think the slow and gentle is important to remember and emphasize because I think when we do have so much built up around something, so much shame or fear, it's very easy to go into catastrophic thinking like, Mm -hmm. oh my gosh, this is going to lead to blah, blah, blah. I mean, especially if someone – has relationship anxiety as well, it can go to that place of like, what am I going to find in that exploration that's going to lead me to, you know, blow up my whole life or become mm-hmm. unrecognizable to myself mm-hmm. or, yes. or are all of my values going to just go out the window? Or So I, I think it's easy to fall into catastrophic thinking when in reality, things are usually not as necessarily dramatic or you know it can it can be that more slow and gentle approach and shifts yes and to be curious about the process itself to bring that lens of curiosity not only directly to one sexuality but to everything that surrounds sexuality right all of the fear and the shame and the shutdown the places where we go silent that if we can start to be curious we're already then in a different conversation. So I think another place people can go around the conversation around sexuality, and I think that this is um, somewhat more in the mainstream right now, not in a great way that if you are sexually free, that you will be like totally uninhibited and, and wildly orgasmic and Hmm. All of these things, like that there's still a goal attached to conversations around sexuality. And it's still that same goal, right, that we've all been fed. It's still that same idea of this is what a sexually free woman Mm. looks like, (laughs) right? And it's not that, right? It's who, it's, it's not any one thing. It's really simply bringing a gentle and curious and slow lens of exploration to to this conversation so that in smaller ways you start to feel a little bit more open a little bit more free you know nothing dramatic not like we see in the movies but for you inside of you. And that's why so much of the course is, has nothing to do with a partner. The whole first two-thirds of the course, if not more, is excavating the layers of shame inside of one's own self, around our own bodies, around things like our menstrual cycle, 
and what that first experience was like and being able to tell that story because that is one gateway into ourselves as sexual women, right? That is a threshold experience. So talking about directly about messages we receive from family, from religion, from the culture at large, being able to walk through that step-by-step, things start to to open inside. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was one of my favorite parts of taking the course when I took it years ago was that you really guided us into starting really at the true beginning, like our earliest memories. Yes. And talking about things that, like you said, might make us cringe or feel ashamed, not just not just the sexy parts of sex, but talking about things like body hair and shame mm-hmm. around body hair. And like you said, masturbation and sex play and all of these things that so easy to want to banish them or to just feel embarrassed and think that mm. you can't talk about. And so that was that was really my favorite part of the course was that it was so rich in terms of excavating memories and experiences from the past that mm. you know our little children were trying to deal with by themselves a lot yes. of the time. You know. Yes. Yes. These are our stories. These are our hidden stories. And we know the power of stories. We did a whole episode about stories, a couple of them maybe. And the stories around our sexuality, again, there's just not that many places where we feel safe enough to truly share, not just in little sound bites on social media or wherever. I don't I don't know if anybody feels safe to share anything in social <laughs> media these days of any real substance. Um but that when we that there are that the goodness, right, the healing power of going back to the beginning and sharing those stories. And that through that we start to retrieve what I've seen as I've led the course many times now is that we start to retrieve these moments of, yes, it's not a big flashy Hollywood moment. There are these subtle little gems, little golden nuggets of a yes that start to shimmer again, right? Get get released. It's like they've been sitting in there this whole time for decades and when we tell our stories and we hear other people's stories, so much of what's healing also is being able to read other people's stories and hear other people's stories in real time, that there's these small moments of liberating what has been trapped, right? what has been pushed down, but it's still in there. It's still in there. Yeah, I'm curious for someone, say someone is listening and they're they're curious about the course or just in general in their life trying to kind of reclaim that yes, like reclaim their pleasure 
their ability to to even acknowledge something that they want in their sex life. If that fear voice comes up for them around, well, what any, I'm sure there's so many different types of fear that could come up around that. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them about what you see? Um, what you see for most people as you work with them around this when they gently and slowly work towards recovering mm. their own yes and their own sacred sexuality. What I typically see is that it's not as scary as you think. Like you said earlier, we tend to tell catastrophic stories in our minds when we go into territory that we haven't explored as much, but that it's it's not it's not scary, that the course is very gentle and that if you don't if you're not called to take the course, but you are curious about this part of your life, I recommend reading books about it. There's a lot of good books out there. Um, I love the book Come As You Are. Uh, I think it's Emily N- Nagoski. I don't know. Yes. Um, yeah. She's excellent and amazing. And it's like when people come to me around dream work and they say, but I don't remember my dreams or I don't know where to start. And I say, well, just open the doorway. Start to read about dreams, right? That can be a very gentle way to send the message to your psyche. I am curious. I am ready to dip my toe into this world. And so start to read about sexuality, you know, and be discerning because there's probably some books out there that might be too triggering. I don't think that one is, Come As You Are. Um, Somebody just recommended another book on today's blog post that sounds great. It's called Sex Talk by Vanessa Marin, or Marin, M-A-R-I-N. So there's, there's good material out there. And even that sometimes I think can be scary, like, yeah. Oh, if I go to a bookstore or if I order a book or, you know, there's, you still have to face some of the shame around it. Um, but the thing I want to emphasize is, again, to to know that if you're feeling scared, you're not alone. That if you're feeling scared, like you said, even about expressing something to your partner that you might like, that that is scary. And I feel scared about that too. And I'm been with Dave forever and I'm 52 and, you know, I still have a hard time at times using my voice and saying something very specific that I might like. It doesn't just fall out of my mouth naturally. So it's okay. We're all in this together. We're all grappling with these, um, you know, um, like it's like a straitjacket, right? Of what what we have to. It might not be that anymore, but it's certainly what we've come from. Our history is like a straitjacket, but there's still some shackles around us, around our voice, around our bodies that that we are grappling with. It tends to come down through the mother line, which I also talk about in the course. You know, it doesn't just come from the culture. It comes directly oftentimes from our families and from our mothers, not always. And it's not to blame mothers, right? That that's just keeps getting handed down. 
So yes, it's scary, right? It's, I think it's scary for most people. And here we are in this place together, embracing the fear, making room for the shame. And, you know, again, just putting on, strapping on that headlight of curiosity to say, okay, well, you know, what can I see? What else can I sift through here that might release and unleash more freedom in this area? Yeah, that's really helpful. You mentioned Emily Nagoski's book, Come As You Are. And I think, like you said, like it is so helpful to get good information and good education. And one of the things that I learned in her book that I think you've talked about, Cheryl, and that I think relates to this idea of kind of getting into contact with our yes is Mm. that a lot of women in particular, but I'm sure just different people are different, tend to not have spontaneous arousal as much Mm -hmm. as responsive arousal. Yes. And I just mentioned that because since we are talking about yes, it can be confusing. Like there can be shame in every single direction, right? So someone might feel ashamed of, oh, I, I, you know, maybe questioning themselves because they tend to respond to their partner's desire and not necessarily feel it right away, but by responding to their partner's desire, they get in touch with their own. Mm -hmm. And someone might feel ashamed of that. And there's nothing wrong with letting that that flame from your partner then eventually ignite yours. Yes. And I just wanted to mention that because I think that's like a really important piece just one in with many important pieces that sometimes we just don't know or we might feel ashamed about and in actuality like you know in our last bonus episode Cheryl we were talking about screen time and mm-hmm. managing our screen time and I brought up this Emily Dickinson poem tell all the truth but tell it slant mm-hmm. <laughs> where she talks about coming to something in a circuitous way not necessarily in a super direct way. And I think even with our sexuality, we can sometimes come to things like it might not seem overtly sexual, but like you said, like eating a piece of fruit (laughs) or putting some really nice essential oil blend in our diffuser and like making the whole room smell amazing. Like, Like we started with talking about tending to our senses or our creativity. Sometimes our sexuality follows these other things, right? Like yes. it comes alive when we come alive in other ways. And so I just think that's all important to hold as well, that it's not just about this super direct, like, okay, now I'm going to, now I'm going to feel desire. I'm going to figure mm-hmm. it out that <laughs> mm-hmm. it's such a nuanced, as you, as you talk about in the course and in all your work, it's such a nuanced multi- multi-dimensional part of our lives. Yes, it really is. And our psyches are in general, but if there is ever a nuanced, multidimensional part of our lives, it's our sexuality. And so much of what we're talking about is widening the lens, widening the frame, taking off the pressure for it to be one way and recognizing the multiplicities of ways that 
sexuality can be expressed. And when we can do that, it it does open up pathways inside of us as even just a, the subtlest, just the subtlest little flicker of a yes, right? But that subtle little flicker of a yes can lead to the next little flicker and the next one and the next one. And then we're experiencing an aliveness that that we might not have been in touch with before. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you, Victoria. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you to Jarrett Farkas for the use of our beautiful new theme music. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe or follow, leave us a review, share it with a friend, and consider joining our Patreon, where we share regular bonus content and also host virtual meetups. Visit patreon.com slash gathering gold to learn more.